Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. This is the Slow Poisoner. I come to you from the future with these words of warning. It's a hot horror planet. It's a hot horror planet. It's a hot. Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 78. This episode is sponsored by the fine folks at Lee's Comics. Attention comic book fans, Lee's Comics of Mountain View, California has closed. But here's the good news. Lee's Comics eBay store is still going strong with over 10,000 vintage comics, the majority of which are now on sale, for half off. Choose from Lee's huge stock of golden, silver, bronze, and modern age comics, and specializing in Silver Age Marvel titles. You can count on friendly service, accurate grading, and quick, secure shipping backed by a money-back guarantee. To check out Lee's eBay store, go to eBay. Click Advanced Search to the left of the search bar, scroll down to Sellers, and enter Lee's Comics, Inc., period. That's L-E-E-S-C-O-M-I-C-S-I. I-N-C, period. Don't forget the period. Lee's Comics is shipping daily with no delays. New items daily. Mention the Fun Ideas podcast and get a free bonus gift. Long title, Looking for the Good Times, Examining the Monkey Song One by One by Michael A. Ventrella and Mark Arnold. A book that examines each song, gives lots of details about each song and our own personal opinions. You can find this book on Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, and anywhere where good books are being sold. Our webpage is wordpress.monkeys.com, where you can see many of the songs and give your own opinions of them. And we will be discussing this more on Zilch. Letters, we get letters. Here are some more recent comments about this podcast. This is from Derek Hubbard about podcast number 73 with Michael Gerber. Great questions. Fascinating answers. Thank you for all your efforts. I've loved the American Bystanders since it left the gate. And the art and writing somehow get better and better all the time. And then a person named Logan commented, probably sarcastically, but I'll take it. Awesome video. It was really good. I want to be friends. Other than that, there is more progress on my Disney book and my Mad book and my four articles for Back Issue. Nothing new has been released since last time, but please support this podcast and also buy my other books. Our guest today is a professor, as well as an avid collector of Golden Age comics, especially those with an underwater theme. Here he is, Malcolm Mobutu Smith. Okay, on the phone today I have Malcolm Smith. How are you today? I'm excellent. How are you? I'm fine. Uh, so, as we usually do on the Fun Ideas podcast, I just always start off with tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in comic books and art and other things that you do. Fantastic. Yeah, sure. So, my name is Malcolm Smith. I'm a 
a faculty member at Indiana University in the Eskenazi School of Art, Architecture and Design, and I've been teaching here for almost 20 years, and I've been teaching uh, art at the collegiate level for about 25 years. Uh, I got interested in art early in life. Uh, both of my parents have degrees in art from Michigan State University. Uh, my mother painting and drawing, and my father in sculpture. And my main area of uh, expertise is in ceramics, but I teach all levels of uh, ceramics, drawing, and uh, graduate student education mm -hmm. in the art school. Um, comic books and the visual world sort of entered my my uh, sphere early on, and I can vividly remember listening to a uh, NPR uh, story about Michigan State's uh, comic book collection years and years ago, back in the uh, mid-late 70s. Mm -hmm. And it was on the strength of how they were describing the amazing collection that MSU had uh, put together that made me, in my young, maybe nine or ten-year-old mind, say, hey, I've got a few books in my uh, collection back in my toy box. And I, that day, rummaged through that thing uh, and pulled out my Avengers book that I had in there and <laughs> said from that day forward, I was a comic book collector and I took him to school with me every day put them on the corner of my desk until the teacher saw the stack getting so big it was obstructing my ability to get work done <laughs> and uh, said I couldn't bring them anymore. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so then I graduated to a box. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, over time, I, it, how I know you is we have a little group called the Comic Book Consortium that's been online for at least a decade. I don't know how long have we done this. <laughs> I, think, I think even longer, because uh, yeah. one of the members, Mike Bromberg, is he one of the founding members of that? I don't know who's the founding member. I got pulled in by Jerry Boyd, so... <laughs> right. Well, Mike and I started communicating long ago when eBay was still uh, structured such that you could see bitter information and emails were part of the uh, open data that you could get, and we sort of we struck up a conversation based on a transaction and he invited me to our group and I then that was probably almost uh, 16 18 years ago yeah and uh, I've just had a fabulous time having the conversations and learning from each of you and just developing these long distance friendships through the uh, interwaves mm -hmm. now I know we haven't met face to face but have you met any of the other consortium members face to face no, I have not. Oh, wow. Yet. <laughs> I've talked to a number of you guys deeply, uh, John and uh, Mike, of course. Mike Mike has been lately uh, communicating via text with me quite frequently in the last few months. Um, mm -hmm. But John Chenault is also pretty frequent communicator with me, and then Jeff Radar mm -hmm. uh, and the late Stuart Silver, you know. Mm-hmm. So. I, I used to meet every because I'm in Oregon now. I I don't get to meet up with everyone. Of course, with the shutdown right now, I just have to kind of stay in place. So I'm not going to California anytime soon. But yeah, I used to meet up with Jerry Boyd and uh, Dick Swan, and you know Mike would show up on occasion, and uh, Jeff Rader, like you said. So we used to get together maybe like once every other year, I think, and just show our wares, as it were. <laughs> Right. I would love to, to make a, a journey out there. My wife's family is from Idaho, mm -hmm. and uh, we made a trek out there and went up to uh, uh, British Columbia a couple of years ago, and we drove through Oregon and Washington, and I think my sister-in-law lives in uh, Oregon City. Mm-hmm. 
Very cool. Yeah, I haven't even been to Idaho yet. The furthest east I've been, uh, I don't know if you know Oregon very well. I, I live in the center in uh, Eugene Springfield area, but uh, yeah. about halfway to Bend uh, is where I've been to Sisters, Oregon, and then a l- and north and south and stuff like that. So one of these days I'll make it to Idaho. But <laughs> um, anyway, um, as far as collecting goes, so you got the collecting bug, brought co- comics to school, um, but you seem to collect a lot more Golden Age stuff. I mean, is that just as you became an adult, or did you manage to secure some early on and things like that? No, right away I was fascinated with the the oddness and the crude artwork of the Golden Age and the kind of mysterious uh, era that was so far flung, and they captured my imagination from pretty much the get-go. I think from age 12 on, mm. I was... I was going through the Overstreet Guide, and I would highlight every single title that I could see an image of in those little thumbnail images that had that kind of masthead from, like, exciting comics or thrilling comics. or And I was, uh, and even Action Comic and Detective, they fell in that same graphic category mm-hmm. that interested me. But I thought, okay, someday when I'm rich and famous and I have all kinds of money, I'm going to have every single... <laughs> in, of these things, and I wanted to get them, mm-hmm. um, and so I just I would just uh, voraciously flip through that book, ignoring my schoolwork, and I you know I had that <laughs> thing memorized. I could tell you on what page in the Overstreet Guide the and what column exciting comics existed on, or Planet Comics, or whatever it was, and I just wanted to have all those Golden Age books. Mm-hmm. As far fetched as that sounded, that's what I wanted, <laughs> and of course I was also interested in. The Silver Age superheroes. The Hulk is my absolute favorite superhero. If you want to just talk about superheroes, but uh, uh, yeah, other than that sort of craving to have every Hulk thing, I wanted to have as many examples of uh, Golden Age titles as I could find. Hmm. And uh, I guess uh, how thorough is your collection as of this point? Yeah. <laughs> well, I've, I've I've snuck up on having probably. A thousand to twelve hundred copies of uh, what we consider from the golden age. Most of them revolving around oddball Silver Age titles, but uh, we'll probably get into deeper thought and conversation about my main thing now. In the last uh, 15, 16 years, I've focused on this thematic collection of underwater covered uh, golden age books. Yeah. So I've. <laughs> And yes, I knew about that, and I was going to ask you about that. We might as well talk about it now. Um, so, why underwater? Are you uh, interested in water sports and uh, boating and everything, or is it just the the theming for the comic books? <laughs> it's really a visual a visual thing. It's an aesthetic, uh, artistic driven uh, collection that looks at the uniqueness of what the artists were challenging themselves with in deciding to depict uh, heroics or whatever's going on, it, you know, it runs a gamut because this collection ignores genre, it ignores uh, for the most part decades, I mean it covers from 33 to 61, so I'm looking at the the big golden age bracket not the not the tight 1956 one, <laughs> but uh, just so I can have more of them in there, I say loosely 10 cent covers Yeah. so the uh there's something going on when the artists decide that they're going to try to depict a substance for uh, actions to exist within. It isn't just, you know, you can see Superman floating through the air or even flying 
flying in space or whatever. It, you know, there's no particular um, thing going on artistically to sort of depict the the atmosphere that they're in. So there might be a few examples here and there of clouds or uh, maybe smoke wisps here and there, but the idea of something being submerged and then coming up with the graphic um, clues to tell you that something's underwater, I just find them incredibly beautiful, fascinating, and I wanted to collect every single example. <laughs> uh, my gateway drug was Wiz Comics number 19. Like, I, I had seen, obviously, lots and lots of uh, golden age books in my life but it, in, I think I'm probably trying to put a date on when this actually started. It was before I moved to Bloomington, Indiana so I was teaching at Western Kentucky University down in Bowling Green, Kentucky mm-hmm. when I landed my Wiz Comic 19 for the first time and it was on the strength of that cover the, the, the structure of that cover the graphic, the graphic design, the fact that the tail of the the shark that uh, Captain uh, Marvel has in, in a headlock, okay. uh, it, it it rips through and sort of obscures the masthead of the title itself. So even in their infancy, they're only a year and a half, two years old at that point, they were willing to obstruct a huge portion of their graphic letter structure at the top of the page uh, for, the, for the value of this amazing heroic feat. Uh, and then, so you have characters floating underneath there. So you have this young woman uh, floating in the water, and, and Captain Marvel's hair is being affected by hypothetical water undulations, and you've got <laughs> bubbles. And, you know, all that stuff just fascinated me. So I just wanted to have every single copy. <laughs> now, um, it's interesting that you uh, like the underwater covers. At the same time, you said... Hulk was your favorite superhero. Why not, like, say, Submariner or Aquaman or something like that? Well, surprisingly, there's very few. There's there are no Golden Age uh, uh, depictions of Aquaman underwater. And I don't. Wow. I, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe there's no actual Golden Age uh, cover appearance of Aquaman in more fun comics, even where he uh, first appeared. There's not a single Golden Age Aquaman cover. You're probably right. I'm thinking more Silver Age, but yeah, you're probably right. Yeah, Golden Age, I don't think there is anything like that. Um, so, it's funny, and then Submariner, of the 39-issue Golden Age run, there's only uh, five or six uh, iterations that have him underwater. Mm-hmm. And I'm getting, I'm zeroing in on the, the final book of the Submariner Golden Age run that, that I don't have, so uh, Sub E-22 is <laughs> on eBay currently and I'm trying to lock it down but it's probably going to go beyond my means hmm. <laughs> but I'm going to try <laughs> um, it, since you mentioned Overstreet is uh, for Golden Age stuff since I don't collect too much of it I have a few here and there but they're always a little pricey for me but um, yeah. over the years uh, how accurate are they as far as scarcity I mean it's like there's certain issues that they say are scarce are they as scarce as they say or vice versa you know, are ones more hard to find or difficult to find than they claim? Yeah, that's a that's a real mixed bag answer. So, <laughs> uh, you know, they, they pride themselves on making notations of things being scarce and every once in a while rare or very rare. But, uh, you know, just like in the, the Gerber guy came out and Exciting 28, which actually happened to be an underwater cover, was a Gerber white space. Um, <laughs> they thought, you know, the, this book was super, super rare. And it is still, by any practical measure, uncommon, but 
but there's probably almost 30 copies in the census now uh, for something that used to be a Gerber white space. And then other books are in numbers in the run. There might be two or three uh, total uh, CGC census findings. So it, it runs the gamut. And then, you know, the other thing is that oddball books that aren't really in demand or uh, titled that don't really... <coughs> Excuse me. You know, issue 58 of uh, A Date with Judy might be <laughs> <laughs> impossible to find, but it's not really that meaningful to people. Right. Uh, and I don't think that there's good comprehensive notation in Overstreet of that at all. Yeah. It's just, there's too many books. There's, there's way too many books to be that comprehensive with it. Right. And, you know, my personal opinion is I think in recent years Overstreet's gotten a little bit lazy on their <laughs> updating of facts and figures and things like that. But Oh, I think they are they are certainly out of date and they, they're sort of losing ground against things like the, the online or, you know, app driven uh price uh updates. So I their their month their yearly sort of annual update thing is not working anymore, I don't think. Yeah. That's what I kind of figured in the last 10 years or so. Um, now, when you find books nowadays, how, how do you usually find them? Is it on eBay, or do you still have luck in stores or other mail order? Very, very little luck uh, on in stores, although my my local store here knows of my penchants and, and <laughs> interests, and so they, they give me a heads up when they get something. But uh, there really isn't that kind of clientele that's bringing in oddball rare books here, so I mostly eBay, Comic Link, Comic Connect. Um, I used to go to Metropolis's website, but they're a little pricey and wacky. <laughs> uh, and then you know, in the old days of eBay, when it was more wild, wild west, you could really make communication and, and meet people and and find out things. So you buy something from somebody, and then you strike up a conversation, and before you know it, you've you've landed you know two or three other things that they didn't even have listed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that that's sort of gone. I'm, I'm, I guess Facebook has sort of taken up that space of you know the Wild West aspect of collecting. Right. There's a lot of weird live auctions that are people are doing in their own basements. And <laughs> it's, it's bizarre. I know. Um, I used to because I collect humor magazines and things like that. And for me, during that Wild Wild West, I was able to secure full runs of things like sick and cracked and stuff like that just because people are offering it so low you know they just have stack of 20 magazines a buck or something you know sure you know did you find any incredible deals during that time uh for golden age books oh yeah uh we're trying to think of a good one uh actually my exciting 28 it wasn't actually that early on but i guess it would probably have been 14 years ago now, and it was before a lot of uh, the reasons that they refer to eBay as eBay was, it was the case. So it, was, so it was a little easier to communicate with people, but somebody listed uh, Exciting 28, that Gerber Whitespace book, for a ridiculously low amount, and I could tell that the person hadn't done the research, hmm. and I nabbed it for a buy it now that was just over 100 bucks, and that book in any any kind of condition that's you know readable goes for plus 1000 Wow. Um and this was a VG minus that I got for about like 120 after after shipping. Wow! And uh, I, I'm still pinching myself with that one. <laughs> Another rare one was uh, Ace Comics number 150, which is the second to last issue featuring the Phantom, and it's got this gorgeous, absolutely. 
absolutely gorgeous uh, underwater depiction with super rich, chunky black lines. That you should check it out, or the the listeners should check this out. With the the quality of draftsmanship on this thing is like unlike any other title. So near the end of Ace Comics, well, I guess most of the Ace Comics just had this hyper rich, super bold black line for the outlines of mm-hmm. all the characters and the last few uh, I think maybe dozen or so issues featured the Phantom uh, on every cover and number 50, 150 is just amazing, I got it for 30 bucks in a near mint condition in a late night auction that was ending on eBay and I, I still am blown away by that one Wow <laughs> Um, I know probably nowadays uh, most of these, I mean, in the old days you mentioned Gerber, you know, but nowadays probably Grand Comic Database has most of them pictured, even if they aren't Absolutely. available. Yeah. Absolutely. And are you just a collector of those type of uh, books at this point, or is was there a, a other genres of Golden Age comics that you're collecting or still collecting at this time? I collect any oddball superhero books. I, I, you know, if I'm lucky enough to get the blue chip guys, Batman and Superman, I'll, I will take it. But yeah. I'm really more fascinated with the weirdos. So I just recently got uh, a book that I've uh, been desiring since about age 14, and that's Hyper Mystery Comics number one. Um, and I just absolutely think it is the quintessential uh, Golden Age title with all the copycat situation of everybody trying to jump in in, in the end of 1939, 1940 when they saw Superman and Batman were selling like hotcakes and they all wanted a piece of the pie. <laughs> and, you know, Hyper Mystery is the crudest, weirdest, strangest superhero cover you'll ever see. Sort of trying to be Buck Rogers, I guess, mm-hmm. with the character Hyper. I think the, the character's name is Hyper. Um, I can pull it out here. I'm actually sitting in my comic book basement room and <laughs> got a, I've got this coffee table that's a three by three square and it's got a glass top and it's got a drawer that is the, the space of the whole top there. Yeah, Hyper. Hyper the Phenomenal is the superhero and it's just the the wackiest drawing. His <laughs> anatomy is broken. Um, the leg looks distorted. He looks a little bit androgynous and he's just got two pistols He's ready to rock and roll, and it looks like a giant eyeball behind him. But yeah, those, that kind of book and books like Whirlwind, which I I secured all three copies of Whirlwind comics um, about 20 years ago. I love those. I'll never sell those. Uh, <laughs> any of the oddball, early, timely titles like Daring Mystery or Mystic Comics, I love that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're, they're super pricey, and so I, I don't get them very frequently, but if I land them, I land them. <laughs> um, any favorite artists from the period or that you like? Well, Schomburg, Alex Schomburg, you gotta you gotta dig him. Kirby, yeah. of course, who covers the gamut. Kirby is my all time favorite uh, mm-hmm. comic artist um, for all of his all of his uh, genius, uh, both for longevity, his ability to reinvent himself, and to uh, pretty much he built this entire thing that we all are in love with. Um, and uh, who else do I really like from the gold? Well, I like uh, Fletcher Hanks of mm. uh, the uh, Fantastic Comics, and I think he did a few a few issues of Jungle Com- or Jumbo and Jungle early on, and then he sort of was only in the game for about a year and a half, and then went into obscurity. Right. And then Basil Wolverton, of course, is an amazing artist. <laughs> Dick 
his work as well on Frankenstein and even his earlier stuff for Jumbo and uh, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Those, are the, those are a few of the, my top top oddball characters uh, that drew comics. Mm-hmm. And then is there a favorite publisher uh, from that era? It doesn't have to be DC or Marvel or Timely. Uh, the, maybe favorite obscure publisher, just to kind of familiarize myself? <laughs> well, there's uh, Nita is, I believe, the one that did uh, Whirlwind. I thought it dig them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I like Centaur. I don't have a lot of Centaur books because they're just pricey and rare, and uh, I think they were using an even crappier paper than most of the other <laughs> companies. And their books seem to deteriorate in a way where they seem to, when I find them, they're fragile or brittle more frequently than I see other hmm. books of the same era. They don't seem to have the same mix in their pulp. Their paper pulp was different, but I do love like the Arrow. I've got one copy of the Arrow from 1940, and uh, yeah, I would love, that's one of the, I like to have a, a goal that's out of my reach, so if I could have a lot more uh, Centaur titles, I'd like to do that. Yeah. I had a Star Comic number four at one point with the uh, Windsor McKay uh, characters from Little Nemo on it, and I sold that one, but I, I enjoyed having that book for a while. <laughs> uh, uh, Nita, Nedor, um, Pines, standard quality any of the people that just had all the not so known characters at least not so known outside of the comic book collecting community the hmm. doll man and plastic man and right um all those folks i i, I like the, the wacky ones yeah <laughs> and um uh, do you collect any like reprint compilations or are you strictly just original copies uh, I'm, unfortunately, I'm a bit of everything, so I've got a huge library of okay. of reprints, uh, multiple, multiple different reprints. Anytime that a good quality reprint comes out or a compendium of things and it's Golden Age focused, I'm usually trying to buy it. Not for I don't try to pay retail for it, but I yeah. sometimes I will. Um, but I also have a, a pretty massive Marvel Silver Age collection, just about complete. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I just love those books, um, pre-hero and hero books. But I pretty much gave up with trying to keep up with modern comics in the last 12 years or so. I do buy a few titles from time to time, but I stopped with the major people. You know, even the Hulk, I don't even buy, buy his book anymore. He's my favorite character of all time. And, I, you know, I just don't like where new comics have gone. Yeah. <laughs> Seems like that's a consensus. At least everybody who's appeared on this show, <laughs> I, I, I might have had one guest once that told me about you know what's going on in current comics, and it was interesting listening to him. But I just can't get that focused on current stuff anymore. You know, I try, but yeah. Well, there's a lot of talent out there, drawing talent, and probably some good writing talent. But yeah, and I'd be I'd be lying if I said I didn't buy a few. But I don't buy from the big. I buy from uh, it seems like Image just seems to put do new crazy stuff out all the time and I, I get interested in, in some of the work and the, the quality of the artwork is just so up there I can't deny it so I buy a few of those issues and I've been always in love with Mike Mignola for for as long as he's had Hellboy out there so I have the entire <laughs> uh, Mignola run both issues and reprints and hardcovers and anything I can get of his I have so to that 
like very selective. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, on any of these reprint compilations that we're talking about, uh, do you ever are you ever consulted for scans or anything like that? Since you might have one of the only copies available or something. <laughs> not yet. Not oh, yet. Okay. But uh, I'm getting ready to do my own publication uh, oh, okay. of the underwater collection. So it's going to be a coffee table style book with uh, larger than life, high, high resolution uh, scans, reproductions of all of the covers, every single Golden Age cover that has an underwater depiction. We are currently uh, drafting the the book up now. I've got uh, a designer uh, colleague that's working with me on it. I've got another guy that does uh, printing and graphic design work, and I've got... uh, an art historian writing essays for it, and myself, I'll be writing essays for it. Cool. And we hope to put that out mm, probably sometime middle of next year. Mm-hmm. We're looking at Fantagraphics or Teshin as a publisher. Mm-hmm. It'll be a thick book. It's going to be easily four or five hundred pages. Wow. <laughs> One of these giant 13 pound tomes. And so that's exciting. So, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's interesting where I'm going to have the collection represented both in just the covers, but also breaking it down into what do you discover when you put together a thematic group of books and you start aligning. It's not just that it's the same theme, but then within that theme, you start to see ideas get repeated or tendencies or certain things that are exemplary within the whole group. And so I'm going to sort of try to come up with chapters that pull out different artistic and uh, genre situations. We'll probably have it collated uh, chronologically, although in my collection here in in the boxes, I have it um, alphabetically organized Mm -hmm. for ease of of locating things. But when we put it in the book, we've been sort of debating whether it should be chronological or or alphabetical Hmm. um, for ease of use. Uh, but I want it to be a reference book and a, a book that sort of prompts people to get into their own version of thematic collecting. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you've ever run across this, but uh, and I've tried to backtrack <laughs> long ago when I was a teenager reading either um, uh, an annual Overstreet Guide or maybe some other you know semi-annual publication, the Overstreet Update. There was an article that talked about or described collecting you know, collecting to collectors or how do you collect? And there was a paragraph that that mentioned, you know, people collect for all kinds of reasons. Some people collect Christmas covers, people collect Mm -hmm. uh, banana yellow covers because they just love the color yellow. And, you know, and that that sort of struck me. Um, And and I've held on to that that thought for a long time that somebody possibly has boxes and boxes of books that are only together because they all have this particular yellow color for the majority of the thing. And I thought, amazing thing to sort of focus on right. is uh, a formal element of the comic book and so that's festered in the back of my mind until I finally sort of overlapped and I a reason to do a thematic collecting thing came to my head but I, I really still can't tell you for certain why other than the, the singular drama of underwaters that are unlike anything else I mean you could certainly find someone that would collect um, all the Schomburg sort of hyper claustrophobic looking uh, war covers, and I, you know, I'm I'm just as fascinated by those as anything else. Mm-hmm. And I bumped into somebody that said they collected uh, all parachute covers, so people that are paratroopers, <laughs> or yeah. and 
the ones the most interesting ones I've ever heard. I mean, this one's pretty straightforward. Is I met a person uh, that collected chess covers. So wow. a- any cover that depicted chess, and there's like the famous Batman cover where they're playing chess with the Joker and things like that. Uh, and he brought uh, this is at Lee's Comics when it was still open. He brought over a cl- sampling of like 20 books that he had, and it was fascinating just because, yeah, there's a lot of chess covers and when you don't collect them per se for that reason. It's just like. You know, are there any chess covers? And then you start seeing them, and you go, "Wow!" You know, and when I first heard about you doing the underwater covers, uh, my first thought again was, "Are there that many underwater covers?" <laughs> and then I thought, "Yeah, they actually are." You know, and it's like, you know, but I, I you know, I think it's kind of interesting to collect by theme. I've never really collected by theme as much as genre. So you know, my forte is always humor and stuff like that. But I, I think the wildest one I've ever heard anybody say they collected is, since I'm a Harvey Comics fan, um, this person collects little Audrey and little Dot covers that show a bit of their underwear. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The little little upskirt things, huh? Yes. <laughs> and I go, I'm not touching that one, but I always found it kind of a, a, an interesting thing for that person to collect. <laughs> yeah, that's a little creepy. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, you know, you know. Of course, now every time I see one of those covers, since I have a big collection of Harvey books, uh, you know, I think of that. You know, it's like thanks, guy, for ruining my collecting. Yeah. No. <laughs> well, you know, in, incidentally, there is a, a great uh, underwater chess cover, which is uh, Superman playing underwater on Action Comic number ninety-six. Oh well. <laughs> so you can cover you can cover both bases <laughs> with one book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you mentioned the the Submariner cover you're looking for. Uh, are there any other issues that are still elusive, or is it really down to that? Oh my goodness! No, oh. <laughs> I mean, of the of the four hundred and twenty, I think four hundred and twenty seven uh, examples that I have indexed. I don't own them all yet, but I have a, a running list of to get. I have about 370 of the issues now. Wow. <laughs> and part of them is just not, you know, there's a lot of them that are super common that I could buy. I could buy 20 or 30 issues uh, any day of the week if I wanted to spend four or 500 bucks on $20 books. Mm-hmm. And I could get 20 or, 20 or 30 books at a, at a go. But I'm always sort of uh, conflicted by whether I spend big gobs of money on buying a whole bunch of cheap books that, that fill holes, or do I save up that money to, to land the few whoppers that I'm still missing? Mm-hmm. Um, particularly ones that I'm still hungrily going after, and I'll sort of build up to the most fascinating example for the last, save it for last, but like, I need Action 15, okay. and I've owned Action 19 and an Action 17 in my life, and I've sold both of those things, but uh, I need Action 15. It's sort of the holy grail of putting together the blue chip character early on, early Superman cover, mm-hmm. and it happens to be a super exemplary underwater book. Um, so when I get that one, I'll be very, very happy, and I'll know that it's all downhill from there, so it's probably <laughs> the price book. Well, that one and uh, Adventure 27. Adventure 27 is just uber rare mm-hmm. and expensive, it's a non-hero cover, 
and it has an amazing uh, I think his name is Flesher or Fleischel uh, the co- the cover artist mm-hmm. but the shark attacking guy and like it just looked the water is so turbulent it's like no other water depiction of the golden age of the early golden age and it also unfortunately has the first uh, ad for action one in it so uh-huh. it's highly covered <laughs> whenever it does pop up in any grade it's just ridiculously expensive mm-hmm. um, I need seven C's number four with a Matt Baker cover that yeah. is so coveted now that yeah. even beat up good copies are going for four to five six thousand dollars mm-hmm. so I'll probably never land that one unless I find it in some miracle buy mm-hmm. uh I didn't think I'd ever own Detective Eye comics, which is a centaur title, but I got that one a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, Detective Eye number two is just a gorgeous underwater cover. And then I need Fighting Yank number three, which is uh, an oddball title, and it's a great underwater cover. I've almost bought one a couple of times, but then I'll bid. And then my worst, the worst one, the one that I'm really, really pining for, well, there's two that I'm really pining for, is hit number five mm-hmm. with an amazing Lou Fine cover with the, I think the red B is on the cover with his uh, diaphanously transparent sleeves and he's fighting a, a swordfish underwater. It is, and it's a black, an all black cover too. It's really amazing. Hmm. Uh, that one I'll probably have to mortgage my house to get it. <laughs> um, the, the other one that I just want to find because it's eluded me and it's super, super, super rare is Prize Comics number 18. Hmm. It's really a gorgeous underwater cover and there's only, I think, two copies in the census hmm. and uh, there's only been two sales of it on Heritage in 25 years. Um, both of them low grade and I would love to land that book. I was outbid on it and I believe I was outbid by the publishers that were putting together the reprint book of the the early prize comics because they didn't even have a copy of it. Hmm. Now, um you're working on the book about it. Uh are you going to include images of these missing comics somehow? Somehow. I'm going to yeah. that's the, one of the things I'm working okay. my my task of the many tasks that we have to do the book is to communicate with other collectors and try to secure uh, high-grade scans from by any w- means necessary. So okay. maybe reaching out to other collectors and people that I know that might own them or get me on the, the, the trail of someone that owns a copy that would be willing to scan it and share the scan with me. Mm-hmm. And do you go one step further and collect original art of any of these uh, covers or no? Oh, I wish. I don't, <laughs> don't have the, the deep, enough, deep enough pockets for that. Yeah. I do have a few pieces of original art that I've managed to get over the years, but they're really random, oddball things and nothing that's really related to the underwater thing. Mm-hmm. I, you know, it would be fascinating. Yeah. I think the Action Action 15 cover sold a couple of years ago, or it might have even been last year on Heritage, for some ridiculous amount of money. Right. Well, the cool thing about it, Heritage is, you know, on their website, they do the high-resolution scans. Uh, yep. So at least you can grab those for your book, <laughs> which yep. I know they do that purposely for all of us to use for our particular books. So it's good that they do that. Um, and then, uh, you know, you're talking about just the covers. Uh, do you get interested in any of the interior stories for the same reasons? Or is it just the covers that fascinate you? Sure. I mean, uh, I'm always 
knocked out. You know, a lot of times the covers are just covers to get you to buy, put your dime down and buy the book, and there, there is no story on the inside that really correlates with the cover image. Right. But oftentimes there is a really juicy underwater uh, story on the inside, and I, I get engrossed with both the artwork and the idea of this uh, submerged space. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't necessarily go out of my way to get books just because they have uh, underwater stories in them that might not be on the cover. Mm. Uh, I am sick enough, you know, Mike Mike Bromberg uh, uh, got me hooked on trying to get the Sensation comics that were coverless because many of the splash pages actually have Wonder Woman underwater on the splash pages. <laughs> Curiously, of all of the superhero titles that that I collect from the Golden Age, Wonder Woman has the most occurrences of underwater mayhem, both on covers and on the interior. Hmm. They put women in peril more often than any other type of character. Ah, okay. (laughs) I was going to say, I wonder why, but then, you know, you kind of hit the nail on the head. You know, it's kind of the perils of Pauline type (laughs) thing. Um, Let's see. Uh, Now, um... Oh, I was going to put my two cents in worth of it. You, you said uh, you're not sure if you're going to do it chronologically or alphabetically. Uh, if I get a vote on it, I'd say put it chronologically. I think that would be more interesting and see how uh, that type of genre evolved over the years. Of course, you can do anything you want. It's your book, but yeah, that's my well, vote. That's actually, that's actually the way we're leaning, is to go okay. chronological. Okay. And for that reason, to see both how artistic styles shifted over time and you know, just because I think, yeah, I've never actually lined it up even in my, my boxes, my, my short boxes. I don't have them in that order yet, but I'm curious to lay them out that way. Mm-hmm. I'm also planning on doing an exhibition that will be possibly uh, paired with the release of the book. And since I work at a university that has a really nice contemporary gallery, I've talked to the, the gallery director, and she's game for letting me uh, present this my collection that's comprehensive the actual books in in the gallery in a secure space yeah and so we'll have uh we'll have some kind of railing on the walls and then i'll put a giant giant plexiglass that'll be hovering in front so you can't actually reach behind and Mm -hmm. it'll it'll be uh wall after wall after wall of all the golden age books up for people to see Mm mm-hmm be nice to put like a piece of plexiglass with some liquid in it now <laughs> you have to look at all the covers by behind liquid <laughs> <That's hilarious. laughs> um let's see uh so what is the time frame for the book is it uh it's just in the process now or uh so do you think it'll be a couple of years or is it fa- on the oh, fast I'm thinking track? middle middle next year to, to okay. get this thing done yeah. And, um, oh, this is a question I was going to ask. is about, um, you know, the various artists and stuff. Have you met any of the artists that, uh, uh, in the past from the Golden Age, uh, and had any discussions with them about doing underwater drawings or covers or anything like that? Oh, just before the end of his life, I was getting ready to have Herb Trimpey do a uh, an underwater commission for me of the Hulk mm. underwater. You know, maybe maybe like uh, what is it? One eighteen Hulk. One eighteen has a nice underwater submariner battle. Yeah, uh, and uh, I 
was in conversation with him about doing that, and I just didn't have the finances to oh. sort of lock him down. And then he passed away before I remembered to get back to him. Wow! So that was that was my one sort of direct conversation with a with an actual old timey uh, artist. But I've I've commissioned other contemporary folks to do depictions of it for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, that guy does uh, Jimbo for the uh, the underground character. What's that guy's name? John Porcelino. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think a character's named Jimbo Jones or something. Yeah, I, I think you're correct. He did, yeah. a, <laughs> he did a uh, underwater depiction of his character for me, and uh, Chris <laughs> Ware I met recently. He came through as a guest artist here at, at our school, and I didn't actually commission him to do it because he's he's like actually really against collecting, <laughs> but. <laughs> <laughs> It was fun chatting with him, and I sent him some scans because he was interested in the the weird panel structure from Whirlwind Comics. So I sent him some scans of some of my books, and he was fascinated with those. That's very cool. Um, Do you actually read your books? I mean, I know some are kind of fragile, like you're saying. Yeah, I try to read them. If if not read them, I I at least go through them. I don't have many of them CGC'd. Yeah. And I usually take them out once I, if I buy them CGC, I pop them out so I can handle them. Mm-hmm. Because I do enjoy the object itself, and I, I don't want it locked away. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I don't ever think I read a, a Golden Age book cover to cover, but I do nibble on certain stories. And some of them are just so inane that they don't really hold my <laughs> attention. Yeah. I'll have to agree with that on some of them, but yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, they're charmingly fascinating in their crudeness, and I really, even if they are dorky and weird, I, I get into them for their weirdness, and I, you know, they're 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 weird objects of history. Mm-hmm. Um, this might be an obscure question: Is like, are there any underwater covers that were never published? Like they might have been featured in an advertisement for an upcoming issue, and then they just never used it for whatever reason. Uh, the only one I know about is the fact that they they did the ash can, which it was. I guess it's not really published so much as the, there's the ash can of Flash Comics that actually uses the cover art for uh, Adventure Forty One, which oh. is a book that I actually have in my collection now that I never thought I'd own. Which is a beautiful underwater shark cover with a guy sort of floating head down. It's pretty amazing. So, but I haven't researched or found any particular book that never went published that had an underwater depiction. Mm-hmm. I guess the other famous one is the the supposed Submariner version of Marvel Comics number one that had Submariner instead of Human Torch. Mm-hmm. I think that's supposed to be underwater. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. And uh, yeah, just shifting gears for a bit. So, do you ever incorporate any of this theming into your teaching or anything like that, or uh, uh, do you kind of keep your uh, collecting out of your uh, art art uh, instruction? Oh no, it, it completely overlaps. And you know, okay, you know, uh, artwork and and teaching young people how to tap into their passions is you know, you've got to use examples, and so I'm. I fearlessly try to share my own personal examples of my passions and my obsessions mm-hmm. and try to get them to expose and let themselves have passions and obsessions themselves and sort of feed where, where they get their ideas from. Their ideas and art don't come from art. They come from your life. And so they've got to live something and care about something. So I use, I use my collecting 
habits in every single one of my presentations. I do a lot of artist presentations at other universities and hmm. art centers and museums, and all of my PowerPoints have multiple slides that show my collecting room and multiple images of myself with my craziness of so holding a couple of Lord of the Rings swords and, you know, the background of my collecting room. I have about 250 metal lunch boxes that span the whole gamut from the very first Tom Corbett Space Cadet lunchbox to oh, wow. Rambo from 85. Mm. I've stopped really investing in the, the lunchbox thing, but I've, I've got a good collection of lunchboxes and big little books. I've got a lot of big little books as well. Wow. <laughs> uh, I do like to find the big littles that have uh, underwater depictions on the front or the back, and I haven't been so successful going after those lately. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I use I use my passions for all types in, in my teaching, and the teaching helps me talk about the artwork that's going on in the in the comics. And uh, yeah, it's it, there's no there's no, no filter or or. Barricade between conversations that I have with my students and and my own interests in class. So I always ask them at the beginning of the class the icebreaker question. I'm like, "Hey, you got parents or grandparents that have comics? Let them know that they've got a place to sell them." <laughs> Excuse me. Um, yeah, it's like because I always ask people that because some people they're very like, you know, I guess it's just the way they've always been. They're very private about their collections. You know, and it's like, unless you get to know the person, you wouldn't know about that they're a comic book collector. It's like, me, I'm just the art teacher. That's all I do, <laughs> you know, or something like that. But uh, that's cool that you incorporate it into you. Now, the, the classes you teach, what were those again? It was, uh, you know, clay and uh, uh, ceramics and things ceramics, like that? Ceramics and drawing, and uh, I'm, I'm the director of graduate studies, which means that I... I shepherd all of the graduate students that are in the School of Art in their various disciplines, be it painting, be it photography, be it digital art or sculpture, whatever. I, I help nurture them and become uh, becoming teachers and navigating the uh, graduate uh, experience. And then uh, my main area as a, an artist is as a clay artist, a ceramic artist, and so I teach all levels of uh, ceramics, pottery, hand-building, glaze calculation, ceramic art history. Um, all that stuff. Hmm. So, wow. <laughs> it's, not, it's not directly related to comics, but uh, I think, you know, when it, when you talk about art and design and formal structures of artwork, it all overlaps. So they have to know how to look at paintings uh, to make a good pot, and they have to know how to make, to, to make a good pot. You have to look at three-dimensional form. So it, uh, it all overlaps. Right. How, how did you get interested in that versus just, say, drawing? Well, that's an interesting kind of longer question. So my my parents both being artists uh, exposed me to the concept that, you know, being creatively driven was a, a good choice. And uh, I would compete, although desperately frustrated with trying to draw as good as my mom could draw <laughs> from a very young age. And then uh, she also had a wheel, a potter's wheel in the house when I was a child, but I don't have very many memories of that. Um, and when I bumped into the opportunity to take ceramics when I was in high school, I was lucky enough to have a, a teacher who had amazing connections and amazing skills and, and is really an amazing mentor. And uh, if I hadn't met this, this gentleman, Paul Bernhardt, I don't think I would have taken it as deeply as I 
be a clay artist, but I never really let go of either one of those goals and uh, kept going ever since. So clay just grabbed me. It's uh, the ability to make a, a, a drawing becoming physical. The immediacy of working with clay is as, as immediate as taking a pencil on a piece of paper and, and drafting a line. Mm-hmm. And so I've always sort of tried to marry the two together. Mm. If yeah. you go to my website sometime, MalcolmObutuSmith.com, you'll see the wildness of my abstract um, pots that I make. They're sort of uh, very uh, abstract vessel forms that you wouldn't recognize as pots right away. Mm. Now, were your parents professionals in the art world, or are they just uh, doing it as a hobby? Absolutely professionals. My mother uh, originally started as a medical illustrator, and she did graphic design for a number of different printing companies, and then she did a lot of freelance art, and now in her retired years, she focuses mostly on doing sort of freelance jobs, drawing, and then uh, quilting a lot. And my father got a degree in sculpture, but he ran a design school in Lansing, Michigan for years and years where he taught uh, drafting and mechanical design and um, urban renewal renewal stuff. So they would do urban planning and building houses and uh, he educated uh, ex-cons and other kinds of folks at this school and other other young people that needed uh, a skill, more like a trade skill. But he he, he himself designs machines and, and machine parts uh, as a as a draftsman. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's totally in the blood <laughs> you got from both uh, parents that way. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, do you have any children or anything like that? <laughs> I do. I have one son. He's 15, and he's not that interested in art yet. But, oh. uh, <laughs> that was my next question. Is he, he artistically inclined? That <laughs> is a teacher, yeah. and he, he basically just got gifted a, a comic book collection because his dad has 16,000 books, so I could easily give him a starter. <laughs> he's got, like, a whole run of uh, Amazing Spider-Mans and... Uh, you know, Web of Spider-Mans and Star Wars. He likes various things, but he doesn't really collect them yet because he doesn't have to, doesn't have to work at it because he can just come downstairs yeah. and look at whatever he wants. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> um, does he like those type of books, or does he have other interests, or what? He has other interests. I think he's he's uh, into music, and he's also thinking about science and e- economics. I'm not sure what he's going to be yet. He, I don't think he's sure, but... Uh, <laughs> he, uh, he certainly hasn't shown a lot of interest in collecting. He's start, starting to get interested in the fact that there's monetary value in these things, and he wants me to keep flipping them so that he can, I can buy them <laughs> different games or something, you know? Yeah. Um, do you sell a lot of books, just out of curiosity, or do you try to keep everything? Uh, unfortunately, I try to keep everything, but I do have find myself having to sell a few things here and there so I can actually afford to buy other things. Yeah, um, but I've I don't even want to tabulate the amount of money I've spent on the collection over the years. But right. um, do you also try to upgrade? I assume you do. <laughs> mm, no, really, I don't oh. really try to upgrade unless uh, unless it's so pitifully bad in condition that I I don't feel good about having it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I don't I don't have much time or patience for trying to upgrade and and go after. A, a high grade copy of anything. If I land a high grade copy, I feel lucky. Uh, <laughs> but otherwise, I'm not really a great hound when it comes to that. If it's if it's legible and complete, I'll, I'll be happy with it. 
Okay. And um, so kind of like VG plus and up. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Even lower. I mean, when it comes to gold, I'll take a good if the if it if it doesn't have a big chunk out of the cover. Right. <laughs> And is it really for the covers that you're kind of collecting, or you, you, you know, do you have any favorite stories? Even though we already determined that some of the stories are kind of silly. Um, favorite story? Hmm. <laughs> I don't know. I, I really love Fletcher Hanks's work in Fantastic Comics, mm-hmm. and so anytime you can read a Stardust book, I, I really enjoy it. They're so goofy. They're so out of this world bizarre I love them and then uh, Space Hawk from uh, uh, Target Comics I think I like most of those stories by Basil Wolverton I really enjoy reading those and I've reread many of my my actual copies I'm, I'm looking at a stack of three Target Comics right now in my, my drawer here uh, volume 2 number 2 volume 3 number 7 and I, I, I'll get those out and I'll go through them even though I have lots and lots of uh, hardcover reprints Mm-hmm. of those stories I enjoy having the actual book to leaf through more than the reprint oh, okay yeah because yeah earlier I asked about that you know and I thought maybe you get the reprints just so you wouldn't have to uh, continue to paw your originals but it seems like you like the originals <laughs> I do I do I'm jonesing for a, a a Jungle Comics 14 right now because it has this amazing uh, uh, Fletcher Hanks uh, Fatima story and it does involve water, although it's not underwater. He he draws this muscular wave that just comes up out of nowhere, and it, it takes almost the whole panel in a few of the shots. And it it this these bizarre, random, crazy stories where Fatima just has these abilities that just seem like they're invented moment by moment that she can do, and she just brings this wave into the the, the, the landscape, and it just destroys all the, the trees and the jungle and everything. It's just awesome, and I really wish I had that book. So I'm going to have to find it. Even though I've got a reprint of it in in hardcover, yeah. uh, I really want to hold the book. Yeah. <laughs> I know the feeling. I mean, it's like I have reprint books too, but yeah, just holding the original sometimes is just a very different experience. <laughs> Nothing like the smell of an old comic. Right. Tell you what. <laughs> and um, I guess that's pretty much everything uh, I wanted to talk about. Is there anything else that you'd like to talk about? Well, I just really enjoyed uh, chatting with you about one of my passions. So, all right, uh, been a blast. All right. And if uh, anybody wants to get a hold of you or just check out a website, uh, you know, you mentioned the website earlier, but if you could say it again and spell it out, sure. It's Malcolm, M-A-L-T-O-L-M, Mobutu, M-O-B-U-T-U, Smith, S-M-I-T-H, written all as one word, uh, .com. So www.malcolmobutusmith.com. Is that the best way to get in contact with you if somebody has an old underwater comic they're trying to get rid of? Probably, yeah, for (laughs) right now. Or they could could, uh, hit me up on Instagram at sircomgraph. So... D-E-R-C-O-M-G-R-A-F. Okay. All one word. Okay. And uh, the Underwater Comics book that you're working on, is that secured that you definitely have a publisher, or are you still looking? We're still looking to to land the publisher. I've got uh, our historian friend uh, who's writing one of the essays, has connections with Fantagraphics and Titian and uh, a couple other places, and he's going to be helping me uh, secure that. And that that we're hoping to have the book done and ready to be published by summer next year. Okay. Uh, 
Well, definitely keep me posted, you know, even if you're just doing it through the comic consortium or, you know, it's like pop me an email or whatever and just let me know because I'm very interested in stuff like that. So thank you for listening and thank you, Malcolm Mobutu Smith, for being my special guest. Episode number 79 will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas Podcast is provided courtesy of Andrew the Slow Poisoner Goldfarb and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas Podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2020, Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you and good night. Headed home to a cardboard hut with duct tape doors at the price I'm paying. Be glad it isn't yours. Now get up. Don't fall back